This is Guns and Butter. The U.S. policy is simple. If you cannot control, blow it up. And that's what they are doing in Libya. It has nothing to do with liberating the Libyan people. In fact, on the contrary, destroying all the infrastructure of Libya, bringing the most gangsters element, eh? considering them as, as a legitimate government, and putting them on the, on, the, on the top of the Libyan people, and they can also can hustle and control the Libyan people, will be a very difficult task. They might overthrow the government of Libya, but they will not have Libya stable. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Mohammed Hassan. Today's show, Civil War in Libya. Mohammed Hassan is a specialist in geopolitics and the Arab world. Born in Ethiopia, he participated in the student movements of the 1974 socialist revolution in his country. He studied political science in Egypt before specializing in public administration in Brussels. A diplomat for his country of birth during the 1990s, he has worked in Washington, Beijing, and Brussels. Co-author of Iraq Under the Occupation, he has also participated in producing works on Arab nationalism and the Islamic movements and on Flemish nationalism. Today's interview was taped on August 25th. Mohammed Hassan, welcome. Uh, thank you, welcome. Thank you for inviting me. You did an interview with Investigating Action in March of 2011 entitled Libya, Popular Uprising, Civilian War, or Military Attack. It's now August 25th, five months later. Which characterization do you think now is the most accurate? The most accurate it is uh, the third one, that uh, igniting civil war, and uh, the so-called, uh, and the second one also, that it is, is it a rebellion or not? This now become very clear. If you look back into the modern history, at least from the 1930s and 40s, when the Nazi Germany invaded the Soviet Union in 1941, it had prepared also, it's not only Nazi Germany's uh, propaganda and its army have invaded the Soviet Union, but also uh, they have put in an adjective, another, using different groups who are uh, pro-Nazi and pro-fascist elements from the previous exiled element uh, in Germany and outside. And they have created what they call liberation fronts. For example, uh, Russian Liberation Front, which is uh, led by uh, General Vlasov, uh, a guerrilla movement. Then you have the uh, right-wing Ukrainian Liberation Front and so on. So even when they have captured some PWOs of uh, Soviet army and soldiers, they try to divide them on the basis of their nationality because the Soviet Union is a lot of languages and a lot of different uh, nationalities live. And uh, they divide them, and uh, they want them to join these so-called liberation fronts. Uh, the objective with that, it is uh, Nazi Germany's objective is to fight against communism and to liberate the people of uh, the Soviet Union. This strategy and this tactic which the Nazis have perfected is now what United States is, it is using it. Uh, to give an illustration and to put my argument uh, to have a foundation, it is an American professor himself who wrote a book in, in the 80s, Christopher Simpson, blew back 
America's recruitment of Nazis and its effect on the Cold War. So what United States, in fact, did in the time of Kennan and, uh, and their policy of containment, the purpose is that to learn from the German and Nazi experience and how to combat the Soviet Union. So they have, in fact, copied and recruited ex-Nazis and integrated them. In fact, Dallana, even the founder of, of the CIA, it's not only Alan Dallas, but also is uh, the German Nazi who have uh, been imported from Germany after it surrendered. All these techniques and all this, they have learned it from the documents and with the collaboration of the ex-Nazi officers. Now to come back to our situation in Libya. Libya is uh, a big country. As you know, most of African countries are uh, a creation of colonialism. And Libya once had been a walaya or a province of the Ottoman. Then finally, with the inter-imperialist contradiction between France and uh, Germany, that it is Germany wanted to have Tunis, already France is already in Algeria, Germany wanted to have also Morocco. With this contradiction, finally, that's what men calls the famous conference of uh, the Bismarck, what they call the Balkanization of colonization of Africa. The Berlin Conference was made. So Libya, it, uh, later on, that it is Britain, have encouraged the weakest uh, uh, force in this imperialist force, Italy, and Italian imperialism wanted to have Libya. So by 1911, Italy have invaded Libya. In that time, Libyan people are very minority. They don't even constitute one million, about 800,000. Diverse, there is no road, there is no infrastructure, and so on. So on. Despite of that, it is for the first time that it is the Libyan tribes sat and discussed, and they said we will not accept colonialism, and they made a united front and fought uh, against the Italians, which is uh, known by, uh, called Omar Mukhtar as representing as, as uh, the leader. Later on, when the Italian fascists, because as you know that Italy also have tried to uh, colonize my country, Ethiopia, Abyssinia, and it was defeated by 1896. So element of Italian fascist intelligentsia from 1910 on was writing a lot of articles and, and uh, saying that the honor of a white man was broken in, in Africa and we have to replace the white man honor and so on. And, so on. and, uh, and this was the embryo later on for the fascist movement in Italy and gradually with Mussolini taking over the power. But despite of all this is that it is the Libyan resistance continued and Italy then the Italian fascists after they took over power uh, with all the equipment they have and the material they have in comparison with the Libyans who had been not exposed to modern weapons and so on and they are little bit, you could say they are primitive in a sense that it is primitive, they didn't have the modern weapons to struggle but despite of that they continued fighting. The Nazis, the fascists, were killing every man almost about 28,000, and it took them a very long time to defeat uh, the resistance. This is why I'm saying uh, and why I'm explaining that the Libyans had an independent psychology. They wanted to be independent. They don't want to be under any other hegemony. Once resistance defeat, Italian settlers came at the coast and tried to took the best land and so on and impose. Finally, the Second World War came, which is Italy was defeated, and Britain in the north, and from the south, France occupied Libya. In 1951, Libya became independent of colonial rule, made up of three different regions. Did Libya become a nation-state at independence? By 1951, through the UN, Libya got independence. 
It was the poorest country in Africa. Once Libya got independent and the King Idris came to power, uh, it was a very uh, disorganized country in real sense. Modernization was very, very limited, except at the cost. Uh, about 40,000 Italian settlers were there. And there is a segment of uh, modern type of society developed in this area, where a small intelligentsia have developed, and a small bourgeoisie, which is a uh, uh, comprador bourgeoisie or merchant bourgeoisie, you could call, within the Libyan society, have emerged. But finally, the king, which had been an ally of Britain in the time of the resistance of Omar Mukhtar itself. He ran away to Egypt, and then he surrendered itself to the British intelligence. By that moment, Egypt was under indirect control of Great Britain. Then the British uh, sponsored him and brought him and wrote him a constitution called Federal Constitution, and, and they put him in power. And then United States and Britain had a military base. And the only way of the Libyan government at that moment or the kingdom to survive was by giving them assistance from outside. How have oil prices influenced the history of the Arab world? Once his oil discovered by the U.S. multinationals, particularly from Texas, and later on big other multinationals discovered, the revenue of the country was increased. Gradually, with urbanization came. But the Libyan oil was sold at the cheapest price. At that moment, one barrel of oil of all other countries who are producing from Venezuela until the Gulf countries, it was sold by 90 U.S. cents. But Libyan oil, which is the most expensive, the cleanest one, it was sold 30 cents per barrel. So Libya became de facto a new colony with a false flag and with false government. In 1969, three colonels overthrew King Idris. What role has the military played in Libya? The only organized group within the Libyan society became the army. And from this army that the young officers who have been coming from the lowest uh, class of the society, like Gaddafi and his friend, later on took over the power by making a coup, and uh, they call it a revolution, and they took over the power in September 1969. And their assumption and logic and their ideology was based on Nasserism, that Nasser was ruling by that moment Egypt, and they wanted a unity with Egypt based on Arab nationalism and Arab unity, and to unite Egypt and Libya uh, as a first step, and gradually maybe the other Arab countries who are willing to join this coalition to create a very big market, to be independent uh, from, from uh, the imperialist forces, and uh, to use the resources and to use also Egyptian uh, human resources for Libyan development, because Libya has a very thin population and it is a very fast country. What do you know about the Libyan opposition? Is this a very disparate group? If you look at, uh, at the group now, which is supported by NATO, are three type, uh, three groups. One group is that it is uh, Al-Qaeda group, which uh, elements from uh, Al-Qaeda, some young people who won and fought in Afghanistan against the even the United States, and who came back to their villages and who have some training uh, and experience uh, uh, in combating in Afghanistan. This is one of the Al-Qaeda group. The second group is when Libya uh, had a contradiction with Chad, and some Libyan soldiers have been captured in Chad uh, by Hussein Habre, and he sold them to the United States, and the United States took them. It is in the era of uh, Reagan, 
and brought the referrals to, to certain African countries, and finally brought them to the United States, and was uh, supported and trained by Langla, uh, the CIA, and were kept until today. Most of them they became very old, but one of the leader now of uh, the so-called Liberation Front, it is it is this uh, CIA-trained officers who have been captured uh, in the time of the Chad War. The other group is that it is uh, themselves who have been in government and uh, in Libya of, uh, for a very long time, and some of like the Minister of Justice and the one who have been killed, Minister of Interior and all others. This had been uh, corrupt element, in fact. And several years back, there was a discussion in Libya, and they have created with a young Libyan woman jurist anti-corruption commission. And uh, there was a lot of file on them and a lot of evidence. She was making and collecting all the evidences in order to bring them to, to court. So it is one of the first bombardment NATO did, in fact, attacking that department, particularly the files and archive of, of uh, this anti-corruption commission. So this one's the one who have now defected and joined, one of them, of course, who was killed, joined. These are civilians who have been in the government, some of them, one who is an officer, who are, of course, they think uh, in terms of uh, uh, secular. This is another group. They are individuals. The other uh, third group, it is some uh, businessmen who have, uh, in the last 10 years of uh, the policy of uh, being accommodating with the Western companies and so on, and they also have taken a lot of loan from the National Bank of Libya and uh, got a lot of wealth in their hand, and they have a vision to liberalize the country absolutely and to minimize the state intervention. So their interest is that is to integrate into new liberal policy and at the same time to loot the country and to minimize the, the role of the state. And this is impossible because the majority of the Libyans and the government of Libya have rejected. And plus they are very corrupt individuals. They are not even uh, a real businessman in a sense of businessmen, but these are compradors who want to accumulate wealth and they didn't also refund their, uh, their debt. This one's also defected and they went to Masrata. Most of them are also from Masrata. They are business people. These three combinations are called, there are all 60 individuals. Uh, you can divide them, and the most active of them, of them, they don't even meet regularly. The most active and who are interested a little bit in politics, about 13 individuals. The others are interested only on their pockets. Uh, they have no long-term vision for the country. Uh, they have no any political program for their country. They are thinking in terms of, uh, of their personal interest. So this all group together that it is, Suddenly, that it is the, the defeat that there is a, the, the Islamists also, which I have mentioned, they have tried to kill Gaddafi several times, which they didn't succeed. And then, the, in the name of so called Arab Revolution, small, they ignited a small demonstration, which is not even a demonstration, and turned into an armed uh, groups. And uh, this armed group, which have been supported, uh, fed, uh, and protected by U.S. and France and Great Britain in order to use them as the Nazis have used General Valasov, uh, the Ukrainian fascist, Romanian fascist, name it, against the Soviet Union and other movements in the 40s. Now they are a carbon copy utilizing the same situation. Those who have no any vision uh, for, for their country, some of them even they are very backward and uh, they have no any agenda for their country and they have a vision of uh, almost of uh, the Middle Ages. 
their position is that to put the Libyan women into, into the Middle Ages back. I'm speaking with author and journalist Mohammed Hassan. Today's show, Civil War in Libya. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. How would you characterize the Gaddafi Revolution? Could you talk about the influences on Gaddafi? That since the revolution in Libya, there is a great transformation. Libya was a very primitive and tribal society. And since uh, Gaddafi's regime took over, it improved the health condition, uh, it improved the education, it improved the life of the population, urbanization increased, nation building have been integrating. In fact, before the invasion, that it is the UN Human Rights Commission and others, they wanted to give a medal to Libya for her achievement. When you take, for example, Libya and you compare Libya with Egypt, or you compare Libya with all neighboring countries, as far as health concerned, or you look the index, which is even the UN have published it, that Libya have better situation Libyans have than Saudi Arabia itself where there is no even a constitution, it's a family government, where women even they cannot drive a car and so and so on. So Libya was uh, targeted to reverse this achievement in the name of using Arab revolution. Why does the U.S. want the Gaddafi government overthrown? I think what happened is, and why is Libya targeted, it's several reasons. From my understanding is there is several reasons. One is uh, Libya is the biggest country in Africa, geographically. Secondly, the Libyan policy or the Libyan government policy on Africa, Libya is the only country where Arabs uh, have a clear vision for uh, Arab unity at the same time for African unity. Uh, Libya's uh, strategic position, Libya uh, have 1,900 kilometer uh, Mediterranean coast. Libya also connects uh, three continents, Europe, Africa and Asia. But uh, Libya uh, have also uh, strategical wells, uh, whether you call it uh, gas and oil. Probably also when I was in Libya twice, uh, several Libyan specialists have told me also there is a, a possibility of even indication that Libya will have a, a very good, a very big reserve of gold. Libyan policy after 1990 and particularly after 2000, the anchor of the policy was to build the strong African Union. As a result of that, you see in Libya, just before the destabilization of Libya, 1,200,000 Egyptians, they were working there. About 850,000 Tunisians, they were working. 550,000 Algerians, and almost 1,400,000 black Africans they were living, about almost four million uh, Africans are working in Libya. And these African laborers, they are not exploited in the way that the laborers in the Gulf who are living, Asian laborers, their condition is almost in a slave situation. If you take, for example, that it is the domestic women, Ethiopian, a lot of Ethiopians are working as domestic in the Arab countries, in the Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Jordan, uh, Lebanon, and so on. Uh, they are in a slave situation. They took their passport from them. The families are working. Most of the time, they don't even pay them. They don't allow them to go out. 
And if you now just look uh, and you just Google in the Internet, you see that a lot of Ethiopian girls who have come in there because of the poverty and the policy of the government, which is a, a policy of dehumanizing the Ethiopians in general, a lot of Ethiopian girls are committing suicide. When I was in Libya, I discussed with a lot of black African communities from Cameroon, from Nigeria, uh, from Chad, from all Africa, women and men. In Libya, every Libyan, including the immigrant Africans who are working, health is free. You don't pay anything. You go to the hospital, if you are sick, if, you, if, if my wife, for example, me, I'm living there with my family and my wife, she is delivering, she, I bring her to hospital, I don't pay even a, a penny. Uh, my children go to school free. Uh, electricity and water is free. Most of the Africans uh, who are working there, and I made an interview with them, they said, I asked them, some of them from Cameroon, some of them from, from Nigeria. I said, Nigeria is a very rich country inhabited by poor people. Cameroon is a very rich country inhabited by poor people. Most of African countries are rich countries inhabited by poor people. I am living in Belgium, a very small dependent imperialist country, but it's a poor country inhabited huh, by rich people. Itself, it's a contradiction. What Libya did is that it reversed the table. And these uh, uh, citizens from different African countries, which I discussed with them, they have businesses, their own businesses. You don't need even a permission. There is no red tape. You have the same right as any Libyan. And this forging a unity among the masses of Africans, in one sense. The vision of Gaddafi that it is Libya is not only an Arab country, but so is an, an, an African country. 40% of the Libyans are black. They look like Somalis or other African countries. And, and uh, integrating this diversity into one, saying that, yes, Libya is an Arab country, a Muslim country, a Sunni country. At the same time, also, Libya is an African country. There is no racism among the Libyans. Uh, the, the hospitality among the Libyans is, is very, very progressive. Their thinking is very open. Most of the young people I meet, they are born after the revolution. And before Libya was very, very, very poor country. I remember a friend of my father is a Libyan who used to work in Ethiopia. When I was very young, and he used to tell me that the level of the poverty of, among the Libyans, it is a desert, there is nothing, there is no road. This is before the discovery of the oil. So what the Libyan government did under Muammar Gaddafi, it transformed this society. It, it brought them to a level of civilization. Every Libyan have a house, have a car, have health system. Even if when they finish university, and a girl or a boy who have finished university, they wanted to marry, they get each of them, in order to settle, each of them they get 16,000 euros. I don't think it's the richest country in the world, as they tell us, uh, that American citizens will get that in order to settle. Or no European countries will do that. But Libyans had the most comfortable life when I compare it with a lot of countries, including Belgium, including Switzerland. That is Libya, it is used for their own sources. The first time when I went there and I saw the infrastructure, uh, I was surprised. The propaganda outside is that it is led by a dictator. Well, if this dictator, as they call it, is improving the life condition of the people, not only them, including the, the immigrants who are working there in the country and they have the same rights, well, I would like to live under this dictator than uh, an African origin uh, president of United States, which uh, 
United States that is 35% of the population have no health. Uh, a big part, 35 million of American citizens, they are living under the standard of Bangladesh. Uh, the majority of American people now, through the crisis and the, the abuse they did in the last 10 years on the American economy, that it is a lot of families have lost their properties. They are in intense. The people who have been, 1 million people who have, uh, because of uh, the crisis, uh, or it is the weather conditions in uh, one part of the United States and they have uh, left their houses. Still, they live now in, 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 in refugee camps like uh, other uh, refugees, like Palestinian refugees in, in, in Lebanon. This situation is not there in Libya. What is your view of what is referred to as the Arab Spring, generally in Tunisia and Egypt? What shocked them, according to me, is the unexpected popular uprising in Egypt. I went to Egypt in 2008. After 29 years, I have been in Egypt and I studied in Egypt. And I just wanted to check what's happening in this country in 2008. When I arrived there, I started talking. There was a Somali Student Association in the center. I went there and there was an Egyptian man who used to provide us tea. His name is Mohammed and I talked to him. He remembered me. And I said in Arabic, give me, how, how is the situation here? Then he started shouting. He said, this country is ruled by mafia, isaba, gangsters. I was surprised. I asked him, are you really, this is your opinion or, or, or you are the, trying to, to, to mislead me? Then he continued his speech. In three days' time, in three days my stay in Egypt, I realized that this country is in the verge of a popular uprise. One. Mubarak was ruling the country for 30 years in a military decree. Secondly, the systematic destruction of Egypt, since particularly since uh, Sadat and later on uh, Mubarak. Egypt, when I was in the time of the Nasser's legacy in 1970, 85% of internal consumption food was produced inside Egypt. Today, 100% is dependent from outside. 50% of Egyptian budget is only allocated to Cairo today. About six provinces of Egyptian provinces, the people are living in a miserable situation. Three of the provinces, they only eat once in a day, and the other three or four provinces, they only eat once, once every two days. The number of suicide in Egypt, to give you an illustration, if you check uh, the journal called the Chicago Tribune, in 2008, published that in Egypt, uh, uh, university graduates, young university graduates, 10,679 university graduates, they couldn't find a job and they committed suicide. Egypt was ruled by a comprador corrupt elements who systematically destroyed their own country and deindustrialization, looted the walls and accumulated by, uh, to very few families, turned the country uh, into an import-export uh, shop, and they destroyed every self-reliance which had been built, and all the other industries in the past, which Egypt was self-sufficient in textile because it had cotton. Egypt had a sophisticated textile industry when I was studying. Egypt had a very good indus uh, industry in pharmaceutical industry. Egypt had also a very good, a lot of other consumer uh, commodities. All this has been destroyed. Now everything is imported from outside by this comprador merchant mentality. 
and the country's flag and the country's sovereignty have been destroyed. Egyptian army, uh, Egyptian army became a mercenary army. In fact, Egyptian army doctors are now the one who are treating of the American NATO soldiers wounded in Afghanistan. So the condition in Egypt was, was, was terrible. You go to the rural areas, you will be surprised at the misery. The peasants who used to go in the land reform, land democratically, it was taken from them and the feudal classes and the old, old uh, owners, they were given to them. And they are only producing or farming something they want to sell in the market very quick, fruits and other things, vegetables, clearly allocated to the, exclusively to the elite and so on. Egyptian state, it is a police state. There is 1,600,000 police and security dominating the country. Wherever you go, it is there is security, whether it is in uniform and non-uniform. And you see the miserable condition of the country. 30 years under a military decree was ruled. The most populous African country, the most populous Arabic country, which had a very strong uh, technical class, uh, highly intellectuals, specialists in all sense of it, but became a miserable country. When the popular uprise and the spontaneous popular uprise happened, you see the behavior of the United States, particularly President Obama and Secretary of State. Huh? They couldn't even comment. They, they were not even discussing that this is the right of the Egyptian people. This, what they said that they don't want to intervene. Yes, and that's right. I remember that. I'm speaking with author and journalist Mohammed Hassan. Today's show, Civil War in Libya. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. What are the geostrategic advantages of Libya that makes it a prime target of imperialism? So why, why then they intervene in Libya? Why they want to intervene in Syria? This is my second thinking is, uh, it is the geographical position of Libya. Libya have 1,900 kilometer coast, the biggest Mediterranean coast. One wants to control that. Second, of course, the oil and the market, but the most important is to control and to have a military base in Libya. Because the United States, after the collapse of Eastern Europe in 1989, the U.S. designed a policy for the continent. By that moment, it is uh, uh, immediately 1990, Clinton coming to power and uh, uh, to presidency, and Anthony Lake developed a theory. A theory which is called how to control Africa. You need to have the anchor states. And he divided Africa into four zones. North Africa, from Egypt to Mauritania, the anchor state will be Egypt. Through Egypt, will influence this area. For West Africa, is Nigeria was nominated, and Nigeria will be the anchor state. And we have seen the Nigerian intervention in Liberia. We have seen the Nigerian intervention in Sierra Leone. Then they said for the greater Horn of Africa and East Africa, uh, the anchor state will be Ethiopia. And we have seen the intervention of Ethiopian troops to, in Somalian crisis, and they are even defeated. And uh, the, for Southern Africa, the anchor state will be South Africa, they said. At that moment, it was uh, President Mbeki was leading. This is the theory of Anthony Lake. He says, through anchor, this anchor states, we will control Africa. And his plan for Africa, 
United States will be engaged in Africa in one thing, he says. One, food security, just to pump uh, uh, American food as food aid through USAID and so on. So on. Not food uh, in a sense that Africans can mobilize their own resources. Africa is a rich continent while uh, inhabited by poor population. Africa has everything. So instead of mobilizing the population and having to stand in, in their own two feet and to decide their own sovereignty, no, no, no. We'll send them food, and food aid will be our main object. And the third is to fight, uh, or what he called to combat AIDS or uh, HIV. This was the advisor of Clinton was considering the role of United States will be in uh, Africa. Immediately after him, uh, after Anthony Lex's vision, uh, Parameter, the U.S. Uh, journal called Parameter, where um, important officers of the U.S. Uh, Army discuss foreign policy uh, outside of the United States. Parameter, which is a journal of the of Department of Defense, published in 1994, a very long document on Africa. And it says like this, Africa is a very rich continent, and it has a lot of minerals, agriculture, water, and he classifies it, and he, he puts the whole map in this document. If you can find it uh, and check parameter 1994 90, or end of 93 and beginning of, uh, of 94, you will, you will see the document. The document says, after the demise of the Soviet Union and the socialist uh, regimes in Eastern Europe, United States, by combating or fighting an anti-communist and cold war that United States uh, militarily won or politically won, but he says United States also economically weakened. It has spent all its resources in combating and fighting the Soviet Union and uh, uh, Eastern Europe and all other nationalist governments since 1945 and 50s. Therefore, Africa is very important for us, and new competitors are, are, are now coming up, and he is mentioning Japan at that moment. It's not the European Union. And, and in this document says Africa is the richest continent. It has all these resources. And we have to design a mechanism to stop Japan to enter into Africa. And he classifies and he puts what strategies must be implemented in order to block Japan for not entering in Africa or, or having an influence in Africa. One of the things is that it is to develop military-to-military relationship with African army, one, which is means infiltrate, uh, bring these uh, officers to the United States, train them, and so on, which is means infiltrate this army, put your stooges inside, prepare them. When it is necessary, they will also make a coup if it is uh, our line is not uh, appreciated. Second is police police agreement, which is, means a bilateral relation, a multilateral relation with the different countries to train police officers, bring the police officers in the police academy, and so on, because police is the closest segment of, of the security to the people, and so on. So infiltrate this police and make sure that your students in this police will have a, a stronger position and a strategical position that if a danger comes, they can ally with the officers and they can overthrow. The third uh, pillar which is they are putting necessary is that NGOs, which is the non-governmental organizations. 
these non-governmental organizations are two types. One, they call, they call them the civil society. You come in with, with money and with land cruisers and so on. You open an office, and then you check around. And if you find some eloquent young people and so on, you recruit them. And then huh, you little bit give them a better salary and so on. And they do small projects and so on. But in fact, they collect information. And, and of course, also work huh, to show that it is this NGOs, small is beautiful, and weakening the government. The role of government must be limited. African governments, there must be only an arbiter, as if that it is two football teams are playing in the stadium, and you have an arbiter who is, who is, who is guiding the, the football. A government, a national government, should not intervene, for example, in mobilizing the population and creating a sense of a nation building is a very difficult thing. So to, to build a nation building, to encourage the youth to come together in order to, to, to enhance the development, use your human resources, create unity among the people. Most of African countries, because of their diverse languages, diverse religion and so on, you have to forge a unity among these people and among the youth particularly. And the purpose of these NGOs and the civil society segment is to break and weaken uh, the fabric of the society by mushrooms of NGOs. For example, my country, it has more NGOs than uh, per capita, uh, uh, subsidized by their own governments. But, uh, and uh, if you read uh, Spy Catcher, himself is, is a spy, published a book in 19, late 1980s, he explained how the intelligence service, like the MI5, the MI6, uh, infiltrate in these so-called NGOs and so-called even UN organizations like FAO and so on, collect data and so on, and weaken the structure and the body of that country. This is one of the pillars also which uh, Anthony Lake and uh, that document, the U.S. policy was on, on Africa. The purpose is that to destabilize, weaken, divided uh, the, that country in order to control them. This is the strategy of the United States. The Libyan leadership developed Arabo-African policy. It entered South-South policy. It used the resources for their own. Not only that, it, the Libyan government have been uh, very generous for a lot of countries by providing them assistance to give you since the war started in Libya, the aggression against Libya, Djibouti, where there is no American military base there, the population in Djibouti are suffering. Why they are suffering? All the oil for electricity was coming from Libya, subsidized by Libya. That the ordinary people in, in, in Djibouti is suffering because of the invasion against Libya, that the Libyan solidarity was broken. This is Libya's role uh, in the continent. So once the popular revolt happened in Egypt and the puppet regime is at least the head collapsed, uh, the Tunisian popular revolt and the dictatorship of, uh, of that country collapsed, there is a panic came within the interest group or within the north. So they have to invent a new revolution, which is a counter-revolution, one against Libya and the second against uh, Syria. And as we see now, uh, NATO, these ragtags, if you read uh, Foreign Affairs, uh, which is the American journal itself, about several months, uh, just when the so-called Libyan issue was started, if you read that, the Foreign Affairs itself says, these are ragtags who have no any vision. They are just mercenaries used, utilized. Some of them even they are not Libyans, they are foreigners. As you see now, when they have entered to Tripoli, they brought some 
uh, gangs who speak Arabic from, from outside, paid them, and then other elements, with the support of special troops from Great Britain and France and so on, they brought them through the sea and smuggled them to the capital. And with the bombardment of NATO, now you see they are looting the city and killing. What about AFRICOM, the African command, now headquartered in Stuttgart? Will AFRICOM be playing a big role in the future of Libya? The objective is for United States and NATO is simple. For United States is to build a big military base for AFRICOM. AFRICOM is an, a NATO for Africa, which United States have a plan that wants to dominate the world, according to them, but which is most of African countries has refused to give any military base to AFRICOM. Using now their strategies that to overthrow the government in Libya, put their puppet, bring back the military base which have been kicked in the 1970s after the, the Libyan uh, revolution. And Libya, because it is a very big country, you can control the Mediterranean. You can also control the other African countries. It has border with a lot of African countries. And this AFRICOM will be the main pillar of the U.S. strategy for Africa. The U.S. policy is simple. If you cannot control, blow it up. And that's what they are doing in Libya. It has nothing to do with liberating the Libyan people. In fact, on the contrary, destroying all the infrastructure of Libya, bringing the most gangsters element, eh, considering them as, as a legitimate government, and putting them on the, on, the, on the top of the Libyan people, and they can also can hustle and control the Libyan people, will be a very difficult task. They might overthrow the government of Libya, but they will not have Libya stable. To give you an illustration, I just got today an email from a Tunisian friend who have left from Tunisian border and he reached uh, Tripoli this morning. And he sent me a very long email. Most of the cities from the border of, of Tunis until Tripoli still is in the hand of the government of Libya. Zawiya is in the hand of the government of Sarman uh, and all, all. He wrote it in details. And he says also about uh, uh, in Tripoli, he said that it is a lot of media propaganda and a lot of exaggeration. To tell you that it is Goebbels propaganda is going on, at one time yesterday, the BBC, which is considered a respected information uh, organization, they showed in the television using uh, a false picture, uh, a picture which is not about Libya, they just took a picture from India and they just said that uh, there was a big number of Indians. Uh, probably it was in the election time, the Indians taking their flag and a lot of them coming out in a very green area and so on. And they showed that this is the support of the Libyan people for the liberation of Tripoli. It's absolutely fake. I'm speaking with author and journalist Mohammed Hassan. Today's show, Civil War in Libya. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, that's interesting. What else did the uh, email from your friend, uh, your Tunisian friend, is, what, did, what else did he say? He says these ragtags, so-called revolutionaries, uh, when there is no bombardment, they disappear. Once there is, uh, the NATO bombardment starts, they appear. And most of the time they are I don't know, maybe they are sleeping in the day and they are, not, uh, they, are, they are protecting themselves, they are hiding. 
But what is happening now, he said, is that every part of every commune in every area of Tripoli reorganized itself and put the self-defense uh, 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 mechanism to protect their homes, to protect their business, to protect themselves. And trying also to, to, to discover who are from outside who, by stopping the cars, asking the identity card. He says that he was walking in the center of the city and he didn't see them. So the propaganda now, if you look on all the televisions, they are concentrating on Babel Azizia. And they are saying that it is Gaddafi and his son, they have dis disappeared. They are in the tunnel, we are, they are opening doors there and there, we are checking and so on. They, they don't show you the capital itself, they don't show you the population, they don't show you any movement, they don't show any testimonies. They are in fact uh, repeating the same propaganda, the same pictures. So the gr on the ground, the balance of, of forces on the ground is totally different. If this Tunisian can travel from the border, from Tunis, huh, the whole night, and arriving in the morning to Tripoli, he says it is true, it is not the same. Uh, we have taken the same way when we were together twice. He said that the, the last time when we were there, uh, the check, checkpoints were, uh, were not so much. Now he said, yes, there is a lot of checkpoints. They check the cars, they stop you everywhere, they ask, they inquire, and most of them are the popular forces of the region and the Libyan army, who's controlling. And he arrived to, to the capital. But they told us in the news that the so-called revolutionaries have closed this, this road, that uh, the high officials of Gaddafi government, of Gaddafi regime, cannot escape to Tunisia, which is not true. The issue is very simple. There will be a lot of propaganda the coming weeks and months. But the struggle in Libya will be a very long struggle. So United States, again, for the third time, for the fourth time, another Muslim country destabilized and brought it into civil war. They did in Somalia, then Iraq, then Afghanistan, and now Libya. And none of their objectives they have achieved. In Afghanistan, they are spending and squandering the American public uh, uh, money, and there is, there is strategical objective. Huh? It's not realized. Take even the puppet government of Karzai, in one of the mines in Afghanistan, was given to the Chinese company. Chinese, without shooting one bullet, are winning the contracts. In Iraq, the same. It's only ESO, American multinational oil company, had, uh, had won the auctions. Probably also will be in the future in Libya. The same. It's squandering the American working people's wealth. In fact, as uh, uh, the British historian Paul Kennedy said, the rise and decline of great power. United States literally is a declining power. It has a very strong military. It consumes more. In fact, if your, your economy is not dynamic. If your production capacity doesn't uh, support your military adventure, then you are a declining power. And the United States is a declining power, and it is also is an adventure, what they did in Libya. It's an adventure, and it is a panic. I see it from a panic. It's not even uh, a well-studied one. One, they created contradiction within the hate among the Libyans. To give you one illustration, the so-called revolutionaries captured the black Libyan in Benghazi 
I met the family, the father and the mother and so on. And let me tell you about that. He, his name is Hisham. He is from uh, uh, somewhere about uh, 80, 90, 100 kilometers from Tripoli. He left and he went to Benghazi. He left on Thursday. Thursday night when he after he arrived there, he called to his mother and he said that I have arrived in peace, it's okay, my mother, don't worry. And he talked to his father and to his brothers and sisters, even to his fiancée. On Friday, when this problem happened, he was captured. And they are asking him, you are a foreigner, because this is the media and Al Jazeera itself, Al Jazeera's main lie, you see, on, on this uh, Hisham's case. They stopped him and they captured him and they said, you are not Libyan. He said, but I'm Libby. And he was talking in Libyan accent. And the people who are in these gangs, uh, uh, some of them are even drug addicts and so, and so on, and criminals released from prison, uh, they were saying, you are not Libyan. Finally, he had a mobile in his telephone, and they took from him and they, they called the father while the father is in his work. They said to him, we have captured your son here, and so on, and we are going to kill him, and we cut him into, into pieces. I said, but why you do that? What, what, my son is a simple citizen. What, what he did to you? They said, no. It's not us who killed it. It is the system. He said, why? How? You captured my son. It is not the system. It is in your hand. They said, no. It is you have to mobilize to organize a demonstration against the government. But he said, you are the one you captured my son. Why I have to organize that? And then they stopped disconnected the discussion and they called his brother the younger brother and the same conversation so the brother was a bit intelligent he said i wanted to speak with my brother is it true he even thought it is a joke then he spoke he said yes it's true and the way they killed him you can't imagine that they cut him into pieces what was the objective as i have told you 40 percent of the libyan people are black libyans Capturing a black Libyan and killing him by another gang Libyans who are very primitive or maybe drug addicts or name it that. What was the objective? To create hate, isn't it? So their objective even, it is not to have an, a normal uh, transition. They wanted to create inter-Libyan contradictions and then create hate among the Libyans that it is, uh, in fact, preparing for civil war. Second point, after they captured Masrata. Masrata is a big city. All type of Libyans live there from wherever region they come. There's government institutions, teachers, name it, doctors, all type, police, soldiers, and so on. Those who took over Masrata, they are from the Masrata area, or the tribe who lives around Masrata. They chased away and they looted and raped and killed those Libyans who are men hmm, hmm, from Masrata. What was the objective? Who's giving them this direction? It's NATO. The objective is that it is when I am kicked from Masrata and my daughter is raped and my property was taken and my son is killed, when I go back to my area, I mobilize against that tribe. And you break the fabric of the nation building, which Libya did for the last 42 years. I see. To, to simply to, to create chaos. To create chaos, yes. That is their major objective. One major uh, military historian, 
so-called historian, and it is, I think he is maybe the most right-wing one, and uh, Ralph Peters is an American colonel. In his book, which is published uh, uh, in the 99, the title is that Fighting for the Future, Will America Trump? One has to read that book and compare what he's saying and what is happening in Libya. What was the title of the book? Fighting for the Future, Will America Trump? Ralph Peters. He takes the Somali experience, the crisis of the American army had with the General Aidit. And he explains in details. And he says that all our standards, our ethical value, our weapon must change. We are going to fight in the future in every city in the third world if America wants to keep world hegemony. And he explains. And in concrete, how to fight in, in, in urban areas, he explained. He have a chapter. And that, that chapter, when you read, you remember Tripoli, what happened now. There is nothing here, democracy or... It's a fairy tale. It is uh, a colonial invasion. And uh, the only thing is that uh, they will destroy the country as they destroyed Afghanistan and they destroyed Iraq, as they destroyed Somalia. They will destroy Libya, but they will not control it. That is my conclusion. That was the last thing I wanted to talk to you about. Um, you do not believe that they're going to be able to control Libya internally, do you? I mean... Who's going to work with these people? You must have certain infrastructure. You buy them, buy money, is that so? How, how, how? They have break the structure of the, the police disappear, this probably people will resist and will fight. Secondly, is it really they are controlling the country? If the other part of the country still is in the hand of the government or on the supporter of the government, or on the, in the hand of the people, the militia and the people thing and so on, how, how they will rule. They never spoke also about the army. Where is the Libyan army? We have never seen about the Libyan army. It disappeared? It capitulated to the other side? No, of course not. Well, that's a good question. What did happen to the Libyan army? The Libyan army controls uh, Masrata, controls all the other things. These people are, they, in fact, because they didn't succeed to defeat the army, the easiest way is that it is to bring gangs and enter into Tripoli and create a panic. That is what Naomi Klani, she says in the book, the shock therapy. And that's what they did when they took over Baghdad capital and then they brought with them gangs and they unleashed it on the people, looting and so on, government properties, all and so on, to panic, that the people can be panicked and be afraid and remain at home. An American uh, army was only protecting the, the oil ministry. This is a technique. Tripoli is 1,800,000. So once you shock them, then that everything will collapse and we capture. Demoralized will be. Once the head collapses in Tripoli, then the body and the leg and so on and so on, and the periphery will collapse. That is the objective was. This is a fairy tale, huh? why, why, why their theories didn't work in, in Afghanistan. Their theories in Iraq. Never, United States have never won a war. It toppled the Iraqi government. The only war they have won is that in Granada. 
they waged the war against Korea. They didn't win. It was a settlement. In Vietnam, they were defeated. And for that, as a testimony, himself, Robert McNamara, in his book, uh, in the retrospective, that is the title of his book, if you read there, he says that American diplomats, CIA, American officers, and so on, in southern Vietnam, they were telling us a fairy tale. They just project their wishes. And what made the United States bankrupt? From being one of the most dynamic economy in the world, now it was almost a bankrupt state. If the United States had succeeded using her military and, and all in this war, we could have seen it on the... On the contrary, American people are getting poorer and poorer. American industry are dwindling. Certain areas, there is not even electricity. It is going back to third world situation. California could not pay. Uh, California could not pay its public servants. Deficit of budget. And what keeps now little bit United States dollar to survive is that because oil is sold in dollar because of their puppet regimes in the Gulf and so on accepted that line. Suppose today Saudi Arabia and the Gulf will decide that we don't sell any more petrol with dollar, dollar will collapse and it's finished. Then the hegemony of the United States will disappear. Well, Mohammed Hassan, thank you very much. Thank you. I've been speaking with Mohammed Hassan. Today's show has been Civil War in Libya. Mohammed Hassan was a diplomat for the country of his birth, Ethiopia, during the 1990s. He has worked in Washington, Beijing, and Brussels. He is co-author of Iraq Under the Occupation and author of a new book, Understanding the Muslim World, forthcoming in late September in French, with an English translation to be published soon after. He is the author of many articles posted at InvestigAction at www.michelcalon.info. That's M-I-C-H-E-L-C-O-L-L-O-N dot I-N-F-O. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yaramako. To leave comments or order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Visit our website at gunsandbutter.org.